Well, we're reading through 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians is a hotbed of hot topics. And uh, I, every, even studying forward into it, I thought, oh my, you know, some of these I almost want to skip. And today's a little bit of one of those, but I think it'll be of great benefit to us to read what's here. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our quizzers gave some verses from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, but I, I had to shrink it down because of what I think I... I feel I need to share today. So we're just going to do 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let me read um, to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In in that case, you'd have to leave this, this world But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now that's probably not the most comforting passage you've ever heard read from the Bible. Um, we prefer, you know, the Lord is my shepherd and, you know, nice things that, uh, that comfort us. This is a little bit jarring. Did you feel that this morning? Does it feel a little bit jarring? And um, I, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I prefer to do prevention, not repair. And um, I would think that maybe you never, some of you maybe have never heard a sermon on this passage of Scripture before. And if you have... You might have heard it in very dire situations. The pastor had to preach on this because something bad was happening in the church. Well, nothing that pertains to this is happening in the church. This is a really happy, harmonious time. Things are going well. I don't know of any church discipline proceeding that needs to happen. That's a great time to talk about church discipline, right? When we're all sort of doing good in this area. And that's when I prefer to talk about it because then we can understand it when there's no heat in the room. And, uh, and it can be really helpful to us to talk about it in, in that scenario. So this series, we've been saying that there's two things that we want to do. We want to, we, because again, the letter of 1 Corinthians, just to give you the context, is written from Paul, the apostle, to the Christians who lived in the city of Corinth. And he's writing to them about a series of problems. So the first thing he does is he defines the bad news. Here we've got our big magnifying glass, right? So it's like he, he picks up the magnifying glass and he's looking at Cor- the, this church in Corinth and there's lots of things wrong there. And he, he defines the bad news. He sees what it is. But then late after he does that, then he invites the Corinthians 
to put on gospel lenses to see their lives in the light of the gospel, in the light of what Jesus has done for them. So this is what he does. He says, he says here's, what's, here's what's, let me help give you some understanding about what's wrong, but then put on these glasses. Start to see more and more of your life in light of what Jesus has done. And, uh, and that begins to, to repair and fix things and show them the way, um, the right way. So let's talk about this problem. So there's a man, and he is a, there is a lot of what we would maybe call sleeping around happening in the Corinthian church. They are in a community where there's several um, temples to different uh, Roman gods, and uh, those temples um, involve temple prostitution. And so it's a very sexually loose uh, society that they're living in. And, um, but the, the problem, as Paul defines it, is even worse than that, if you can believe it. It's even worse than that. Because he says, this problem, let me just read it again, the sexual immorality that's among you, he says, is a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. He's saying the sexual uh, bad stuff that's happening in the church, the sexual immorality in the church is worse than what's in the community. And the community is bad. So this is really a big issue. Now, this has happened in our day and age. This has happened in our day and age. And you know what? When, when sin is not addressed inside of a church, and if sin in the church is even worse than sin in the community, the community pays attention to that, don't they? Right? There's a movie out, I think it's called Spotlight or something like that. Anyone seen Spotlight? Any? I don't know, maybe some of you have. But Spotlight is basically the, I, th- I think the, basically, I haven't watched it myself, but basically the premise is, there's so many movies I haven't watched, I just never have time. But anyhow, I just read the reviews and go, good, I'm done. Um, what a great experience that was. <laughs> but the basic premise is that there was sexual immorality in the church and it wasn't being dealt with. And it wasn't being dealt with, and it wasn't being dealt with, and it swept under the carpet, and swept under the carpet. And, and then finally, it was the community around the church who were saying, what is going on? What is going on? Where are the leaders in the church to deal with this sin? When it's people who aren't even believers who are asking that question, you know what's bad. And, you know, I, I think of some of the stories that we see and we've seen in the news media and stuff like that throughout, if you're my age, you've seen it through several decades. You think, man, they need someone like the Apostle Paul to write a stern letter, to confront them, to say this should not be. The church is not supposed to tolerate greater sin than the community tolerates. Like the church is sort of an extreme, right? The church has, is, is called to really high levels of acceptance because that's what Jesus was like. He was called the friend of sinners. People accused Jesus of being a, 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 a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus is just a drunk and a glutton, they would say about Jesus. Why? Because he hung out with people who were drunks and gluttons. He didn't allow that sin to stop him from having relationship to him, with him. He wanted them to come into relationship with God. And so they accused him. They said, oh, Jesus, he's people who are very self-righteous. They, 
they would have nothing to do with these people. And so, um, the church is called to high levels of acceptance. High levels of acceptance. If you've got um, people in the community that people would write off and say have nothing to do with them, they've got, they're, they're, they're worthless, there's nothing good about them, everything they do is evil, Jesus would venture there. Jesus would go there. But on the other end of the spectrum, so that's the one extreme, is that Christians are called into relationship with people that other people would write off. High levels of acceptance. But the church is also called to extremely low level of tolerance of sin. So you've got these two extremes. And it's so weird and topsy-turvy when it actually gets backwards. When it flips the other way, where, where the church is tolerating sin so much that the community says, what is going on there? Someone's got to stop what's going on there. And where the church is so self-righteous, it won't have anything to do with anybody. Remember, we're called to be like Jesus. We're following Jesus. So now I'm, probably even in what I just said now, some of you are going, scratching your head, but what about, but what about, I hope I can answer those what abouts before I'm done. But let me keep going. Let me keep going. He says, so there's this sexual immorality, a kind that the pagans do not even tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. We don't know the whole story. Is it, his, uh, is it the guy's mom? Is it the guy's stepmom? Is dad passed away already? Or is dad still alive? I don't know which of the scenarios it is. We just know that the Corinthian community, which was very loose sexually, would not have accepted this. So why is the church accepting this? He says, you are proud. He says, shouldn't your response have been that you go into mourning and put out of fellowship the man who's been doing this? You're proud. I think, you know, you'll see this in, later in the book of 1 Corinthians, sort of how people viewed uh, their response to what Jesus had done for them. So, um, it seems like the Corinthians church had thought, well, here is, Jesus, here is Jesus dying on the cross to take our sins upon him, and so he's pardoned our sins. And so now we live in this wonderful freedom of a forgiving God, so we're free to do whatever we want. They've sort of actually come to the wrong conclusion about what it means that Jesus has died for them and forgiven their sins. They come to the wrong conclusion. And so um, Paul uses an illustration that at least the Jewish people in the church would get. He uses the illustration of the Passover. Let me read those verses for you again. He says, your boasting is not good, okay? They're, They're proud of their sin. Whoa, Paul can't believe it. He says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now this is, now they're talking about stuff that, they're gonna get right into stuff that, again, the Jewish members of the church would get this. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what's he talking about? Well, Jewish people would celebrate the Passover. It goes all the way back to leaving Egypt. There were slaves in Egypt. They left Egypt. There was a night the last night before they left Egypt, they were, they were in, in this, the, again, there was the 10 plagues of Egypt. The last one was the plague of death. And they, they, in order to have that plague of death pass over their house, they all did 
this one act, they sacrificed a lamb and then spread the blood on the doorpost. It's really sort of crazy stuff when you think about it. But the thing was that that sacrifice meant safety and pardon for them. And how did people practice the feast of the Passover? They would, they would not only um, remember what happened in Egypt to, to the sacrifice that was made for them, but then they would do the practice of going through their house and making sure there was no leaven or yeast in their house. And yeast was sort of a picture of sin. So, so the, the picture is, yes, God has pardoned us, and as a response, we purify our lives. God has pardoned us, and as a response, we purify our lives. Well, the Corinthians, they were saying, God has pardoned us. He's forgiven us our sins. Woohoo! now we can live however we want. And Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Think about the Passover. Those of you who grew up in Jewish homes, you, those of you who know that, remember, the, the, the sacrifice of the lamb didn't mean that you live however you want. You live as God's special people, and you allow him to do a purifying work in your life and to purify you from sin. So that's what he's, he's, he's going back to. So he's like, keep, let us keep the festival. Let's, keep in, let's, let's stay in alignment with what God has done. Let's keep the festival. Sacrifice pardons your sin, but work along with that to purify your home. Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice to provide pardon for our sins, and then he takes us through a lifelong process of purifying our lives from sin. It's a process of aligning our lives with what God has done for us. And then that, you guys quoted that verse from verse chapter 6, which I haven't read yet, but basically that great grand statement, you're not your own anymore. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So live however you want. No, so honor God with your bodies. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So the implication is now honor God with your bodies. Let me read you the last little bit in the, in the letter, and then I'm going to jump on to some other stuff here that's going to hopefully help flesh out more of this for you. He says, it's this whole aspect of associating and disassociating. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. So there's two things that work here. Well, it's really not just very practical. If you know people are greedy or swindlers or sexually immoral, it's pretty hard to actually not have any association with them because that's pretty, those, all th- those things are pretty rampant in the world. But the second thing is that those are the people Jesus engaged. Those are the people spent, Jesus spent time with. You say, well, this is confusing. Hang on. Clarity's coming. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister who's sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, slander, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such, such people. So here's the defining thing. With those who don't believe, with people who aren't followers of Jesus, our approach to them is not to jump in and say, look at this sexual immorality in your life. 
Look at this greediness. Look at this, this drunkenness. Look at these things. Actually, you look at Jesus' approach, he spent time with them, he was close to them, he engaged with them, so much so that the self-righteous people were mad at Jesus and judged Jesus and thought he was terrible to spend time with them. But when it comes to someone who says, I am a follower of Jesus, then we're called to use discernment and come into that situation and to help them to follow Jesus. This is an illustration that might help. Because most people can't relate to something like church discipline or, or but let, let me just throw this out. You hire a personal trainer. And that personal trainer is going to give you, when you, you're going to pay them money, and they're going to give you the benefit of discipline in your life. They're going to give you the benefit of discipline in your life. Okay, no, this is strange. Because our culture hates discipline. Hates and loves in a strange way. It sort of hates. It's, it's like we push it away and then we pay to get it back. That's how we do it. That's how we do it. Think of all the, the industry, think of all the employment there is offered to people to help people with discipline. Right? So personal trainers, that's an obvious one, right? I'll get back to the personal trainer a bit. Personal trainer, that's an obvious one, right? I didn't have the discipline to exercise and to eat right, so I'm going to pay you the money because you'll help me have the discipline. Nothing wrong with that. If you hire a personal trainer, go for it. That's, that's helpful. Um, oh, I didn't have the discipline um, to spend my money right, so now I'm going to go for credit counseling. Those are good people. They help people. But do you understand? It's the discipline. It's the fact we didn't like discipline. We didn't want discipline. We didn't choose discipline. Or we didn't have discipline that we had to pay for discipline. So you think of all these things that exist because, you know, so there's counselors that exist because of a lack of discipline. Some of them have jobs just simply for that. Uh, police officers, there's more police officers than normally would be hired because of lack of discipline. Prison guards, they got employment. Um, the guy who flips the fries at McDonald's has his job because of our lack of discipline. Every moment when he's getting the salt just right, he's thinking, thank you, Lord, for everyone's lack of discipline. <laughs> let me read to you out of Proverbs. I'm going to get back to the personal trainer in a bit, but let me read to you out of Proverbs real quick. That's jumping ahead for tech guys. Proverbs 5. This is, the, this is, this is it's not a new thing, hating discipline, by the way. It's not a new thing. Proverbs 5, 11 to 14. This is thousands of years ago these words were written. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline. How my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. How I hated discipline. Oh, man, that could be like the, the, the theme of our generation. Oh, how much I hate discipline. But you know what we hate worse? The results of not being disciplined. We hate discipline, but then when we experience the repercussions of not being disciplined, we're like, oh, that's worse. 
That's worse. The Bible was telling us that all along. Let me read you another passage. Hebrews 12, 9 to 11. This is about God's discipline in our lives. It says, Moreover, we all had human fathers, and I assume mothers too, who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. Wow. Let me just ask. How many of you had a parent who disciplined you in some way? I'm not talking about perfect parents, but you say there's one area in my life they disciplined me, and I respect them for it. Just throw it up if you think you can... You know, if it doesn't come to mind, don't have to hold up your hand. Okay. And I know this is true, isn't it? People say, my parents taught me to work hard, and I hated it, and now I love it. My mom taught me how to keep a, a house clean, and now I realize how rare that is among my peers. In my, my background, like, what did my parents do? They taught me to talk good. And that's why I have this job. <laughs> Your parents probably disciplined you at some point. Maybe at many points. And what do you have as a result of that? Mad skills. You got skills you would never have had. In fact, you might be noticing that as you go along. You're like... Doesn't everybody know how to do this? No, they don't know how to do that. Lots of people don't know how to do some of the things you know how to do because your parents disciplined you. And maybe, whatever age you're at, you haven't quite turned around to respect them for it yet, but hopefully that's coming for you. Hopefully you'll get to that day and you go, oh yeah, I really should thank my mom and dad for teaching me to work. I should thank them for this or the thing that they, oh man, I hated that at the time. I did not like memorizing scripture. And I was hard to lead. I was a stubborn kid. And I, I've shared this before, but I asked my mom, how did you get seven kids who were all very difficult to memorize so much scripture? And she said, well, I assumed it would be a spiritual battle. Oh, that's how you discipline your kids. Assume discipline, if you're a parent or if you're in any discipline scenario, assume it will be a spiritual battle. Put on your armor, gear up. This is not for the faint of heart. You know, I sometimes see kids who are misbehaving with their parents and then their parents are engaging. Like they, their parents sort of block out the rest of the world and they make it all about, I'm going to discipline my child. I just want to go up and like give them like a war medal or something. I just want to say, you are an awesome parent. This kid is giving you the best. They are fully engaged, and they are defying you with everything in them, and you are standing your ground. I'm like, oh, I love it. Great parenting. Other times, I'm like seeing a kid disobey, and I'm like looking at the parent, and it's like they're looking at up, up in the air, and I'm like, I want to, I've never done this, and don't do this. But I want to just lean up real close to them and just whisper in their ear and say, Follow through. You told them not to do something. Now they're disobeying. Follow through. But I never do it because I have discipline. <laughs> I have a little bit of discipline, not very much. <laughs> we all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? What's the result of submitting to God's discipline? Life. Discipline's hard, isn't it? But the results are awesome. 
They disciplined us, your parents again, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order, in order that we may share in his holiness. God's holiness. That's, it's talking about not being a slave to sinful desires anymore. Being set free from that. Not being in that cycle of guilt and shame. You're like, I'm here again. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I can't control this. I can't believe I'm, I, I, I seem like, it seems like I'm a slave to this behavior, to this selfishness. Why can't I get a handle on these things? He's saying, God is saying, I'll discipline you. I'll discipline you for your good. So you can share in my holiness, so you can experience true freedom. Not the freedom to sin all you want, but the freedom to not be enslaved by sin. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Amen. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. That's so true. Isn't that true in your life? No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Some of you have, you have a level of peace in your life that you should thank your parents for. But God's discipline is even better. It says there's a harvest of righteousness attached to it. So it's like I can have... No discipline seems pleasant at the time. So I can have this pleasant, sinful moment. Or I can have this harvest of righteousness. I can have this small pleasure now. Or I can have this massive return later. And the difference between that and this is just faith. To believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him and that if you say no to this sinful desire, that it'll produce much more good than the pleasure you would have got in that moment. You see, Christians are really, if there's any area that we're gluttonous, it's in the area of joy. We want the greater joy. I don't think we should hide it or be ashamed of it. We want greater joy. We read the Bible. We see what God says. He says that he'll, he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And we say, well, we can have this other reward of those who ignore God and those who, who disobey God and those who, 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 who give themselves to sin. Or we can have the reward that Jesus is talking about. And so it's just a simple, I just think it's being smart. You go, okay, I can have this thing that's pleasurable now, but then I'll regret later and wish I'd never done, or I can have the reward that God gives, the harvest of righteousness, I can have greater joy. I want the results of God's discipline in my life. I want, even though I don't like discipline, I want the results Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. And that's the sin dilemma. Do we want a pleasant moment now or a harvest of righteousness later? So when we talk about church discipline, it's like, wow, it's a crazy concept for some of us. But I've already talked about it's important to not uh, tolerate sin in our lives. 
I mean, that's just straight up. But especially in this case, this is a very extreme case. You know what? When you read 1 Corinthians 5, it comes off a little bit angry. When I read it, I, it comes off so confrontative, so angry. As a Canadian, I'm, I'm a little bit set on my heels because we try to be polite and, not, and mind our own business. Right? So it comes off a little bit like that. But you know what? I, you know who I think he's really angry at? I think his anger or, or, or his frustration or his big confrontation is not the man who's sleeping with his father's wife. It's the church leaders who will do nothing about it. It's the church leaders who will do nothing about it. If you find this a scary passage, I find this a scarier passage. I find this a scarier passage. It puts a, hello, Lord, are you there? (laughs) So nice. I find it a scarier passage because it puts a weight on those who would aspire to be leaders. When Phil comes up here and says, we're looking for more people on the elder board, and then I preach out of 1 Corinthians 5, that should almost dissuade people. (laughs) Who wants to be a leader? Who wants to be in that position? Who wants to have to confront sin? Who wants Paul writing them a confrontative letter and saying, what are you doing? You're proud of how much you've tolerated? Of how much you've let sin gain the upper hand in your lives? Let me show you a few verses that I think will help define a little bit. I said I'd come back to the personal trainer. I will. Let me share a few more verses that help flesh this out. I think they're helpful. In 1 Corinthians 5, if you read it alone, you get sort of one bit of it. But this is built on, on the back of Jesus' teaching about discipline. Jesus' teaching about um, helping people who are in sin. So I'm going to share that, and then there's another little bit in here uh, from Paul as well. So first, um, Matthew chapter 18. It says, if your brother or sister sins, no, no, no. Do we want to start with that one? No, I'm going to start with Matthew 7. Let's do Matthew 7 first. It says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay. So you, if you, let's say you get to the point and you say, okay, I want to help others. I want to help others. I have friends in my life who got sort of, I see big red flags in their lives, and I want to help them. Okay? And, and, and let, me just, um, let me just narrow it. Because here's the thing about all this back and forth where most of the confusion comes in. Should I do this now? Yeah, I think I'll do this now. Okay. You have to define the relationship to know how to relate. You have to define the relationship to know how to relate. So, if I'm, again, relating with someone who's not a believer in Christ, then for me to come to them and say, hey, here are the commands for believers in Christ, they'll say, well, excuse me, I'm not one of those. That's a strange interaction. That's like we we, we made a mistake. But to come to someone who is a believer and a follower of Jesus to say, hey, here's help in your following of Jesus, now that makes sense. 
And so sometimes we get really confused. We're telling the world around us, those who maybe aren't followers of Jesus, you should be doing these things. And they're saying, why? I haven't bought into that. Right? It's like the personal trainer, okay? The personal trainer is you've given them your money, and they're training you, and they come and they sit down with you, and they say, listen, uh, you missed all our appointments at the gym for six months. You didn't come to any of them. You didn't even come to the first one where we weigh you. Like, you haven't even come. And uh, every time I see you, you have a 12-pack of donuts from Tim Hortons. And that's all you ever eat. I've never seen you eat anything but donuts. Just donuts. And so I'm begging you to start coming to the gym and stop eating donuts. And you say, nah, not really interested. But I sure like having you as my personal trainer. Any self-respecting personal trainer would say, listen, I'm washing my hands of this. I'm not your personal trainer. Functionally, I'm not your personal trainer. You shouldn't tell people around town that I'm training you. (laughs) I don't want anyone to think that I'm your personal trainer. Soon as I leave, take that t-shirt off that says Bob's Gym. Get it off. You're the worst advertisement I could possibly have. There's no evidence that I'm training you. I'm not training you. You're not following my training. You are not benefiting in any way from the discipline I'm offering you. Now imagine that that personal, now that all made sense. That all makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Now here's where it doesn't make sense. If that same personal trainer was to walk into Tim Hortons and just randomly come up to people and say, hey, donuts, gluten and sugar, not good for you. What are you eating that for? People would say, who are you? I'm a personal trainer. Well, you're not my personal trainer. I've never signed up for your program. I don't want your discipline. I want donuts. (laughs) Andy Stanley, he had a sermon on some of these things, and he had just a really great sentence to take away, and I'll give it to you today. When it comes to who you judge, or I'll read it to you in the scripture first, and then I'll give you Andy Stanley's. It's how we judge and how we do this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And then he goes on to say, I don't mean people who aren't Christians. Keep associating with them. Because they need Jesus. Keep telling them they're loved by God. Keep telling them there's, there's, a, there's a Savior who's willing to forgive and to bring them into, their, into his eternal family. Tell them. But I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. And then here's the line. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And the rhetorical question, answer is None. That's not how we approach people who aren't followers of Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you are totally off the hook with this entire sermon. Everything I'm saying is directed at Christians. And you're probably relieved because I'm giving it to them. Okay? (laughs) 
I've given it to me too because I'm a follower of Jesus. I have to follow exactly this as well. But if you're, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're just checking this out and you're wondering about it, well, I'm glad you're here. Thrilled you're here. But I'm really not talking to you directly. I'm talking to Christians because Christians have sometimes really got off on the wrong foot with their friends who aren't followers of Jesus. Talking about how they should live a moral lifestyle based on Christian belief that they don't believe. Jesus made it really simple when he first took on people into his discipline, called them disciples. He said, come follow me. Goes on to say, I'll, be, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you like me. I'll make you a kind of person who can invite people into this very same relationship that I'm inviting you into. But it wasn't, fix yourself, then come follow me. Fulfill all these moral obligations. Get your life all fixed up, then follow me. I would say, Jesus catches his fish, then he cleans them. That's the, that's the process. Let me get to that last few lines here in, in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, God will judge those outside, and then, of course, we're called to judge inside. Let me give you some guidelines that will help us with, with, with this. Again, I said that the teaching of Paul is built on the back of the teaching of Jesus. So Matthew 7 you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You want to help somebody? Make sure you repent first. Make sure you repent first. I heard a statement just recently, and it, was said, it said that pastors will never teach about sins they have not repented about. Pastors will never teach about sins they have not repented of. I thought, that's probably not true. I bet there's a lot of hypocrisy that happens too as for pastors. But I thought, I know that dynamic. I know that dynamic. I've experienced that dynamic in my, little, in my life as well, where I'm a little bit skittish because I'm like, oh, man, who am I? I haven't, I haven't dealt with this in my own life. Well, that's why it's so important that if you're in any form of leadership, and if you're a parent, you're in a form of leadership, by the way. If you're in any form of leadership, that before you confront before you say, hey, I see a speck in your eye, here's something, I see a red flag in your life, that you repent. I, I spent, you know what, while you were here worshiping last week, what I was doing, I was repenting. I went away, I, we do, twice a year we do a retreat called the Set Free Retreat, where people just really deal with stuff before God and come away fresh and clean, and it's awesome. And I did that last weekend. When I'm facilitating that, I don't get to do that. So I went away so I could be a participant, so I could just be a person before God, a follower of Jesus before God, dealing with my own stuff. And I didn't go, know going in what God would show me, but he began to reveal areas of my life where relationally things weren't good, or, uh, and I had to repent of those things and, and turn, and repent means basically do 180, turn away from that thing that you've been doing. And I, he began to show me just different things in my life, and it was great. Well, it's not great when you discover stuff isn't good in your life, but it's great because he's great at forgiving and he's great at leading you. And, and the whole process leads you from fo- self-focus to God-focus. So in the end, you're rejoicing in who God is and not focused on who you are, which is great because heaven knows I spend too much time in self-reflection and not enough time in, in god 
honoring worship. So first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Yeah. It take, when we repent, it brings us to the right place that we're able to help other people. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, caught in a sin, you can take it two ways, can't you? It's like, I caught you. But you can also think of somebody like an animal in a trap or something. Because sometimes people are like, I just do not know how to get free. I don't know how. And that's different, right? It's one if someone's hiding their sin and they, aha, that's different than help me. I keep messing up in the same ways time and time again. If someone's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. If you counsel or you help somebody who's, who is dealing with a certain area, uh, you've got to really be on your guard, Right? Maybe you're counseling an angry person. You might suddenly notice, man, I'm, I'm feeling angry. Maybe you're counseling uh, someone who sexual temptation has been their struggle. And you suddenly say, wow, you know, engaging with them, I have to keep coming back to God and making sure things are pure in my own mind and in my own heart in this area. And then here's Jesus' words on the process. This is a great little process. I love this because of how methodical it is. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out, this is Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. This is much better than how it often can happen. Right? It sometimes is, like some people, if you were to rewrite the scriptures, this is how they would write it. If your brother or sister sins, tell 25 people And never tell them. This says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. And it, it, you'll, it's implied, go alone, because you'll see next that the next verse tells you that. Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So you're minimizing shame, and you're maximizing the opportunity for them to be able to turn from sin. It's showing deep care for them. Say, listen, the only, I'm here alone. I haven't told anybody. But I see a red, potential red flag, and I, I just want to talk to you about it. And the last thing I want is for you to miss out on God's best in your life. I don't want you to be trapped in this. And um, so I'm just going to bring it up. But I'm just letting you know. It's just, just you and me. Now what you find is, you might find repentance. It's like, I am trapped in this. You're right. Thank you for bringing this to me. The person responds. It's an amazing thing. Or you might find resistance. You're saying, no. I think that's just fine. For me, what's helpful is a defining the relationship moment. Um, I'll tell you about one I had a few years ago. I had taken a young student. Um, well, students are all young, younger than me. I'd taken a student. <laughs> I think they were in high school, so they were younger than me. Out for uh, coffee, and as we are out for coffee, I was the youth pastor at the time, and I had to, we, we had a really nice time, and then at a certain point in the conversation, I knew I had to tell, talk to them about something. They'd been doing something regularly in the program that was not good, and I won't say anything more than that. It just wasn't good, 
And uh, so I said, you know that thing you do every week at the program? Um, and it was a simple thing to change. It wasn't like something they had no control over. They could change it. I wasn't asking them to, you know, do something impossible. And he said, I, I want you to stop doing that. It was something very easy to stop. Just let me clarify that. He said, I want you to stop doing that, okay? And you've been doing it every week, and here's the reasons why it's not helpful for you or for other people, especially for other people. And so I want you to stop doing that, okay? And they said, no. And then I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, you're sorry? I said, yeah, I, I made a huge assumption here. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, oh, I thought I was your pastor. <laughs> they're like, oh, well, you sort of are. I said, no, 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 I made a huge assumption. You know, I make lots of assumptions sometimes, and so I, this is what helps me to define the relationship. First, find out if, if the person is a follower of Jesus. That's really helpful. How's your relationship with God? Would you call yourself a follower of Jesus? Because otherwise, we're not going to go on to the next topic. <laughs> I, we'll start there, because that's way more important than the next topic. The most important thing is your relationship to God and G, your relationship to Jesus. The fact that he offers you forgiveness, he offers you his love, he offers you uh, um, to be his son, a daughter in his eternal family, that's the most important thing. And this other thing is, that's secondary compared to that. So I was in this conversation with a student and I just realized, they didn't see me as their pastor. And I, I assumed that, right? It's tricky nowadays. Let me just say, it's trickier, I think, some days uh, nowadays than it was for Paul. Paul wrote to Corinth, there's only one church in the town. So when he said, in order to help separate this guy from his sin, in order for his spirit to be saved, that's what it says in the text. That was Paul's motivation. You say, was he just mad at this guy and just wanted to treat him badly? No, he wanted him to have eternal life with Jesus Christ. That was his motivation. He said, in order to do that, you have to do something severe. You have to separate yourself from, from him. You have to say, okay, until you've, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you persist in this sin with your, with your father's wife, you, we can't, we can't hang out. We can't, you can't come and, and, and take the Lord's Supper with us and you can't do all the things that are part of being brothers and sisters in the same family. And the hope, the great hope is that that action would separate them from their sin. Like sin will separate you from the Savior, or your Savior is going to separate you from sin. And the hope was that this separation that they were creating, this sort of, this, this uh, church discipline that Paul was saying you should do, was so that he would come to his senses. In Corinth, it was different than Moose Jaw. He wouldn't just be like, well, fine. I don't like this church anymore. There's another one down the street. There was only one church. One small band of people who are following this Messiah, Jesus. Today, it's a little different, right? I've, I've experienced this before, too. It's like you start getting into someone's life and you say, you know, 
I'm just raising this red flag and showing you something here. And they're like, man, this church is a little bit, you know, uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm going to go find a different one. Because we hate discipline. We love the results of it. But we often don't choose the results. We choose the pleasures of sin for a season instead. But those who choose discipline, oh, amazing what God will do. Amazing what God will bring into their lives. It's all about faith, isn't it? It's all about trusting him. That he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's the backbone of what faith is. You say, I'm going to trust God in this area of my life. I'm going to respond to godly leaders in my life who are bringing correction to me. Because I know this is for my good. And this is painful, but I'm going to embrace it. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Awesome. But if they will not listen, take one or two two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now this is very interesting. You say, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. It means that, again, it's down to defining the relationship. Right? How did Jesus treat the pagans and the tax collectors? Hung out with them? Hope to win them into the kingdom? <laughs> it's like, what a crazy cycle this is. So, you're a leader. You're a parent. You're a leader in the church. Whatever your role is, there's lots of other ways, ways to be a leader. And you realize that, or you see something... Where do you start? Well, you take out the plank out of your own eye. So that means you repent. You get down on your knees and you say, God, search my heart. If you aren't heartbroken over sin, if you're just mad about sin, you're probably not in the right place to confront. Paul said, shouldn't you have gone into mourning? Shouldn't you have gone into mourning? You probably, if you've been a parent, you know this. You probably know both, the difference between both. You're just mad at your kids. And then other times you're just sad. Those are different. Those are different. Like, oh, my kids are difficult. Oh, my kids are missing out. God's got so much more for them. It hurts me to see them take the hard road. It hurts me to see them become enslaved and in bondage. I want so much more for them. And that's the attitude we need to take. Whether you're a parent or a leader in the church, you say, oh, I want so much good for them. I want so much good for them. And so then your approach is going to be different. It's not like, you sinned, and boy, you're not as good as the rest of us, because we know, because we've been on our knees, because we've been repenting, because we face the darkness of our own heart, that that's not true. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so when we come, our approach is totally different. We're sad. And we're pleading. And we're saying, I don't want you to miss out. I don't want this sin to separate you from your Savior. I don't want this sin to grow and control and destroy. 
I want good for you. I want good for you, and Jesus wants good for you, and he loves you, and I love you. And, but this, this isn't compatible with following Jesus. This isn't compatible. If you say, I'm following Jesus, this isn't following Jesus. This is going the other way. So Jesus, this following of Jesus calls us into some sticky situations, calls us into difficult conversations. And it takes us into places where you really shouldn't go. It's just too dangerous to go unless your heart is right before God. And so when there is obvious sin in the lives of, of someone you know, a believer, we're, we're not talking, unbelievers, again, their call is to follow Jesus, right? But with believers, just obvious sin of called believers, it should bring a soberness in the church. It should bring a repentance to the church. It should bring a heart searching to the church. Not this self-righteousness that there is one who's not doing well. No, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. If I'm going to go into the danger zone with somebody, if I'm going to begin to have a conversation that maybe is confrontative about sin, then you've got to do a work in me, or I am going to be the guy with the plank in his eye that can't help anyone with the speck. So call me to repentance. Call me to allow the searchlight, the spotlight of the Holy Spirit on my heart so that I can come. Because God's desire is to restore people into himself. Now, this is where it's true for those who follow Jesus or those who don't follow Jesus. God's heart is to restore people to himself. Whether you're the Christian who's sort of wandered off and loved something else and chosen another pleasure instead of the pleasure of God, or whether you're someone who's never, ever made a commitment to Christ, you've never, ever come into relationship with him the first time, his desire is restoration. His desire is for, for you to be able to have a relationship with him, unhindered by sin, sins forgiven, and a continuing process of sins purified from our lives. And that's what he's calling us to. That's what he's, he's drawing us to. And sometimes he uses us in the process. Often he, he desires to do, use us in the process. It's whether we're willing to be used. Let's stand together. Let's stand.